in an experiment. Yeah, we didn't know yet. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speak. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Nature. Hello and welcome to The Nature Podcast. This week, brainwaves are making a splash and mapping the landscape of childhood cancers. Plus, physicists find a fingerprint from the early universe. This is The Nature Podcast for the 1st of March 2018. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. First up, astronomers have found evidence of the universe's first stars from a period known as the Cosmic Dawn. And the signal isn't quite what they expected. Here's Lizzie Gibney with more. For the first few hundred million years of its existence, the universe was a dark place. Only once electrons and protons had formed atoms of hydrogen and hydrogen had clumped together, could the first stars begin to shine. So how can we study this long-ago era? Using a telescope to detect the very faint light from those first stars is extremely challenging. But physicists realise they might be able to detect early stars in a different way, through the impact that their light had on the hydrogen gas that still flooded interstellar space. That's what Judd Bowman and his colleagues set out to find. Astronomers have been looking for evidence from this time for probably over a decade or two decades. This particular signal that we're trying to study is very hard to see because it's very faint. We're actually using radio waves to identify sort of the fingerprints of the first stars. So we're making an indirect observation where we're seeing the effect that stars had on primordial gas around them. The team looked for a slight dip in the intensity of radiation known as the cosmic microwave background, an afterglow of the Big Bang itself. Energetic light from the first stars would have slightly changed the behaviour of the gas in the early universe, allowing it to absorb this radiation. That would create a tiny dip in the intensity of the radiation that should still be visible today. The trouble is that the frequency of this dip sits in the radio wave part of the electromagnetic spectrum, and so the faint signal would be easily drowned out by waves made much closer to home, from stars in our own galaxy, radio stations and even digital television. Judd's team had to minimise and account for these sources, and when they did, remarkably they saw a signal emerge. It was almost too good to be true, So the team then spent the next two years checking it was real. Our first reaction when we started to see the signal in our data was a cautious sort of scepticism. And so after two years, we passed all of these tests and couldn't find any alternative explanation for the feature we were seeing in our data. And at that point, we actually started to feel a little excitement. (laughs) The U-shaped dip in radiation is tiny, but packs a wealth of information. The longer the light has been travelling across the universe, the more it is stretched. So the wavelength at which we first see the signal, the start of the dip, tells us when the first stars lived. That was at least 180 million years after the Big Bang. More than that, the end of the dip gives the point in time when the stars and galaxies had heated up the gas so much that the absorption signal stopped. And so we see that happening less than 100 million years later, so by roughly 250 million years after 
the Big Bang. So that gives us two very uh, important milestones in the history of the universe that we now have much more information on than we've had in the past. Getting the first signal from these primordial stars is essential for understanding how later generations of stars formed, eventually culminating in planets and people. But the discovery also held a surprise. So we've seen this feature and it looked very much like we thought except for one really big glaring exception. It occurs in the right part of the radio spectrum, but the size of the feature, the amplitude of it, is twice as big as we expected. And so that's very difficult to explain and requires possibly some uh, new physics or some improvement in our understanding of the universe uh, to account for that larger than expected amplitude. This inconsistency with the predicted results has got other physicists excited. His cosmologist, Renan Bakana, on how he felt when Judge showed him the signal. Uh, I was actually quite amazed. Initially, I, I, I was skeptical. I wasn't sure. I mean, Judd was still uh, making final checks. But uh, I decided to take it seriously and uh, treat it as an interesting puzzle. The timing of the signal fell within the, the right ballpark. But the amplitude was very, very surprising. And the signal was way bigger than all of that range, really. It was outside the range of possibilities. So that seemed very, very exciting. According to Renan, the dip being much bigger than predicted suggests that the gas in the early universe may have been colder than expected. And the question is, what could be even colder and actually cool it down? And then I realised that the only candidate is, is dark matter. Dark matter is one of the biggest mysteries in physics. We think it exists because of its gravitational pull on visible matter, but it's never been seen. Renan says that because dark matter interacts with other matter only very rarely, this would have allowed it to stay cold, and particles of dark matter could have then acted like ice cubes to cool the hydrogen gas. If this is what we're seeing, it has huge implications for the hunt for dark matter. If it's proven to be correct, uh, it's a clue about the, what the dark matter is and how it interacts. So it would mean that the dark matter has an interaction, does collide with ordinary matter, and that by itself was very interesting, and uh, particle physicists will uh, explore that. If Renan is correct, this would be the first time we've detected dark matter through anything except its gravitational effects. It would also make dark matter much lighter than physicists expect. That could explain why no dark matter has been seen in experiments so far. For now, this is all speculation. But thankfully, physicists won't have to wait too long to corroborate the findings. Experiments in Europe and the United States, some involving much larger arrays of instruments, will soon study the radio signal in greater detail. Judd is eager for other teams to confirm their findings, but also to explore other exotic explanations for this very surprising result. I think Renan's idea is incredibly exciting and would be fantastic if it's borne out as future observations continue to probe this feature. I'm sure additional ideas will be proposed by our colleagues as the, the results are published and they read more about it and have time to think. That was Judd Bowman of Arizona State University talking to Lizzie Gibney. You also heard from Anand Bakana of Tel Aviv University. Their papers are both available now on nature.com forward slash nature and Lizzie's news piece is up at nature.com forward slash news. Still to come, watching DNA wind and examining butterflies' double-sided wings. That's in the research highlights. But first, Adam is finding out about the symphony in our heads. 
eagle-eared listeners of the Nature podcast may remember a study that made waves in 2016, literally. People with Alzheimer's disease have reduced gamma waves in their brain signals. So, neuroscientist Li Wei Tsai attempted to nudge the waves back into their normal rhythm. To do this, she placed mice with an Alzheimer's-like condition in a box with rapidly flashing light, like a mini disco. When she measured the levels of a key signifier of Alzheimer's, amyloid, back in 2016, we found that with just one hour of live flicker treatment in the visual cortex of, of these mice, they show about 50% reduction of the amyloid load. That was, that was the moment it was just, I think it's a once-in-a-lifetime kind of experience. Fifteen months on from the publication of her paper, Nature publishing a feature looking at the potential that brainwaves offer for a whole host of conditions. I got back in touch with Li Wei to find out how things were going with her research on Alzheimer's. She told me she wasn't the only person to be taken aback by her findings. Yeah, the reaction was overwhelming. Since our paper was published, I received you know, numerous messages from people all over the world. Some of this response came from fellow neuroscientists. Neuroscientists like Robert Knight at the University of California, Berkeley, who hadn't expected brainwaves could have a physical, measurable effect on amyloid plaques in the brain. To me, it was very surprising. I really hadn't thought that some driving at some specific frequency would actually lead to uh, removal of plaque burden. Still, there's a long way to go before we know whether this approach could treat Alzheimer's. There have been many promising efforts to treat Alzheimer's in mice, that have failed to work out in humans. So how can we know if this approach stands a chance? We've been burned, you know, hundreds of times, so I think this question is completely fair. <laughs> it's better that it works in mouse models than it doesn't work in mouse models. <laughs> For Robert, there are two important next steps to build on our understanding. One theoretical, one practical first thing is we need to know more about the physiology of the brain waves, right? So basic science on what they represent and what information their uh, transfer they're involved with needs to be determined. So that's the basic science. And then the other side is you say, how do we know it works? There's only one way to know it works, whether it works. You have to do clinical trials. For clinical trials, this approach has an advantage. Because a flashing light is both simple and safe, this method can be tested in humans quicker than a new drug, for example. Li Wei has co-founded a company, Cognito Therapeutics, which has already begun investigating the potential for people with Alzheimer's. They have initiated human studies in a small cohort of uh, people to evaluate the safety and feasibility of this approach in humans. This work illustrates the importance of brainwaves for healthy brain function. But there are still some pretty fundamental questions about what these fluctuating patterns of electrical activity even are. To be honest with you, I think there's still, um, you know, a lot of question marks in terms of, you know, uh, how the brainwaves are initiated, uh, what's the precise cellular mechanism, and how is it maintained? Li Wei's work is part of a growing body of research calling attention to these electrical oscillations. 
That's according to Walter Kuroshetz, director of the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke at the NIH. Over the last 10 years, the the oscillatory activity has drawn a lot of scientists to understand its function. The oscillations are kind of a marker that cells that are oscillating together are involved in a certain function together, whether they be in one brain region or spread across multiple brain regions. But still, I think we're at the very beginning at understanding the oscillations as the marker of connectivity. Brain waves appear to be reducing amyloid plaques in the brain by triggering immune cells called microglia. And this, Walter says, could have implications way beyond Alzheimer's. The basic finding here is that there's a frequency dependence between neuronal firing, particularly in in these interneurons, and microglial activation. So that basic finding, I think, has implications all over the nervous system. So, for instance, in epilepsy, uh, the, the activation of microglia in epilepsy, where you have very rapid firing, is an area of, of intense investigation. And uh, so I think that this interaction between circuit activity and the microglia is, I think, incredibly important, and it's going to be important for, for many different conditions, both normal development and response to injury or pathologic conditions. And Robert Knight agrees that researchers are increasingly attempting to harmonise brainwaves for all sorts of different issues. There's been an explosion in brainwave research. So in a way, if you think about it, a lot of the methods are trying to get the orchestra to play in tune. So I think that's been a huge focus in neurological disorders. So for instance, in stroke, psychiatric disorders, ageing, you know, pick your pick your area and, and, and different people are trying to apply predominantly extracranial stimulation to improve behavior. I think it has tremendous potential applications. That was Robert Knight, who's based at the University of California, Berkeley. You also heard from Li Wei Tsai, who's at MIT, and Walter Kuroshetz, director of the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke at the NIH. There's a feature all about brainwaves in this week's Nature. Find it at nature.com forward slash news. And to hear our original podcast piece on Lee Wei's research, check out the episode from the 8th of December 2016. Stay tuned for the news where we'll be filling you in on the UK university's strike and the tool that can spot duplicated images across papers. Now, though, it's time for the research highlights read this week by Noah Baker. Have you ever dreamt of making lassos from DNA? Well, it turns out that the protein condensin has already mastered that. Condensin helps squeeze DNA into cells, but researchers have quibbled over how. To end the cycle of speculation, a team nailed down a strand of DNA at each end. They tagged it with a fluorescent dye and set condensin on it. The orange dye enabled the first live footage of condensin in action to be recorded. The molecule latched itself onto the DNA and started reeling the strand in from one side, threading it rapidly into a large loop. Cast an eye over the full paper in Science. The kaleidoscope patterns on many butterfly wings differ from one side to the other. Biologists have found that a gene called Apterus A, known for its work on beetle wings, is also the evolutionary artist behind the double-sided design. 
The team mutated the gene in caterpillars of the African squinting bush brown butterfly. When the fully fledged flutterers emerged from their cocoons, they displayed similar patterns on the top and bottom of their wings. Cue rapturous applause for Apterus A. Mutations in the gene may also be behind some of butterflies' splendid diversity. Flutter over to the Proceedings of the Royal Society B for more. Next up, reporter Anand Jagatia takes a look at new research into the genome sequences of childhood cancers. In the developed world, the leading cause of death by disease in children over the age of one is cancer. Fortunately, childhood or paediatric cancers are rare and cure rates have increased to about 80%, which is fairly high. But that's a number that hasn't really changed much in recent years. Honestly, in, in the time that I was involved with paediatric oncology, which is the last 15 years, there was not too much of a progress. We basically are stuck at 80%. This is Stefan Pfister from the German Cancer Research Centre. We will probably not get much further by doing more of the same, uh, which was largely optimizing um, chemotherapy and radiotherapy um, protocols and combining them in a meaningful way. To try and get over this upper ceiling of 80%, his group has taken an alternative approach to look at the genomes of the tumours themselves in the hope that sequencing their DNA could tell us more about the mutations that may be driving cancer and provide targets for treatment. This week, Nature is publishing two papers which analyse the genomes across multiple cancer types in children. The papers represent the first ever analyses of this type and Stefan Pfister is one of the authors. His study looked at almost 1,000 tumours across 24 cancer types. Research is usually disease-focused, right? So everyone is doing a genome study in, in a particular um, type of cancer, but usually we don't really make the comparison with other cancers. Um, and since paediatric cancers are really fundamentally different from adult cancers, we, we cannot really extrapolate, extrapolate so much uh, from from the adult world. And, and what we felt now timely was to really um, take all of this data together and to really assess what is specific about one cancer type or, or a set of cancer types in comparison to the others. The study highlights several key ways in which the genomic landscape of childhood cancers differs from adult cancers. On average, in paediatric cancers, in comparison to the typical adult cancers, the number of mutations across the whole um, cancer genome is about 15-fold lower. And what we conclude from this is really that also when, when trying to um, specifically use some of these mutations potentially to attack the tumor, we probably have a higher likelihood of finding something to fight. The analysis also looked at mutations that the children were born with as opposed to those that accumulated in their lifetime. We think that it's probably about 10% of um, paediatric tumours that are caused by inherited uh, factors. There are many of these that, that basically um, also come along with either resistance to certain types of therapy, but also with a higher sensitivity of secondary malignancy. So th these are the patients that we want to really filter out um, to make sure that even, you know, when curing the first tumour, to not induce a second tumour based on our therapy a few years down the line. The studies also found that the mutated genes in childhood cancers are generally different to those found in adult cancers. In adults, while multiple cancer types, 
brain, pancreatic, liver often share the same mutations, in children, different cancer types tend to have their own specific set of mutations. All of which confirms what paediatricians have long known, that we have to think of childhood cancers as separate from adult cancers. This is Mimi Bandapadaye from Harvard University, who wrote a News and Views article on the studies. So you can imagine that an adult who develops a tumour, they've been around for many years and their cells have had more exposure to environmental things that can cause mutations, which can cause cancers, for example, UV light in the sun for melanoma or cigarette exposure for lung cancer, for example. Whereas children, we see cancers sometimes even before babies are born. That gives us a clue that unlike adult cancers where you can get an accumulation of mutations that might then cause the cell to become a tumour, in paediatrics often it just takes one and then that can actually trigger a tumour to form. So what might all this mean for cancer treatment? Stefan and his colleagues searched for mutations that could potentially be targeted by existing drugs or drugs in development. And in 50% of the tumours, they found one. By having a certain genetic mutation, um, this does not, of course not mean um, that the tumour will be responsive to a drug that is targeting this gene or this mutation. Um, but then we also have the 50% of cases where we don't have a very clear um, drug target. Um, and there uh, we really have to learn a lot more about vulnerabilities. Mimi says that these findings are cause for optimism. But she also told me that cataloguing the mutations is only the first step. The next key step is we need to understand how the mutations are actually causing the tumour cells to grow, right? So if you have a mutation in gene X, what does that do to the cell to make it more oncogenic is the word that we use, or to behave more like a tumour? And then we have learnt from, this is where the adult cancers will guide us, we've learnt from our adult colleagues that cancers are they're stubborn things in that when you treat a cancer with a medication, they will adapt or evolve to become resistant. And so in addition to identifying targets, working out how the targets are causing cancers and how to inhibit it, we also need to study how the tumours are expected to become resistant so that we can go in with combination treatments to try and stop these tumours from becoming resistant to, to single agents. Nevertheless, childhood cancer analyses like these could be important for future research. Mimi hopes the approach could help create more tailored and less damaging treatments for children. So I'm a both a researcher, but I also see children in clinic. I actually went back to school and did my PhD after training to become an oncologist because I couldn't bear to see children come to clinic and for us to have no treatments to offer. Um, I believe that these sorts of studies and other studies that are going around the, the world at the moment collaboratively will move the bar. And I really hope um, that by the time I retire, things are going to be different where kids come to clinic with what are currently incurable brain tumours and we're going to have treatments that will target their tumours and, um, and a way to give these kids and their families hope and a chance. Mimi Bandopadaye and Stephen Fister talking to Anand Jagatia. You can read both the analyses and the News and Views article at nature.com forward slash nature. Finally, this week, it's time for our news chat and Richard Van Norden, Nature Features Editor, joins us in the studio. Hi, Richard. Hi, Adam. 
Now, in the UK, universities are dealing with a strike. Who's actually on the picket lines? There's around forty-two thousand academics on strike. It is a big strike, and about twenty-five thousand of them or so are researchers. This is fourteen days of strikes planned over four weeks. The first five days,、uh, as we're talking, were、uh, due to end on the twenty-eighth of February,、uh, and more than sixty universities are involved. And this is a strike about pensions, about academic pay. It's one of the largest strikes in Britain's recent history. You mentioned that it's about pensions. What's the dispute actually referring to? Well, the problem is a 2017 valuation of the main pension fund for many employees at Britain's universities, and according to that valuation, it has a deficit of more than 12 billion pounds. And Universities UK, a body that represents British universities, proposed changing the way that pension income comes in from having a guaranteed element. To being entirely dependent on return from investments in the stock market, and according to some models, that would cut pension income by several thousand pounds a year, depending on your salary. Now, that's going to affect the pensions of about at least 190,000 faculty members and staff in the UK, and they're very angry about it. And this is all up for negotiation right now. As a result of the days of strikes we've seen so far, talks are being resumed between Universities UK, but they're not yet changing their view of the deficit of this fund. And how unprecedented is this kind of industrial action by academics? Well, for the UCU, this particular union, it's essentially unprecedented. In recent history, a decade ago, there was a one-day walkout strike,、um, but here we're talking about two weeks overall of strikes, and uh, not just uh, lectures to students, but、um, a strike on on all work,、um, including scientific experiments, and some conferences have already been cancelled. Fourteen days of not doing experiments seems like it would really. Quite disrupt a lot of work. Yeah, it will be difficult to make up missed lab time.、Uh, we talked to one chemist who said he was crossing the picket line because he had very sensitive equipment that just didn't need to be switched off. One computer scientist told us his team might not be able to bid to host a five million pound training centre in artificial intelligence because of the strike. Because、uh, the opportunity was announced just two weeks ago, and there's a very short deadline for applications. So he said, "I'm potentially hurting my university's finances by." Endangering this bid, but、uh, I think that my own and other universities are jeopardising the future well-being of their staff. So this has to be stood up against. So when can we actually expect this to be、uh, resolved to to some extent? Well, the board that runs the pension scheme has to submit its final decision on the changes by the end of June to the country's pensions regulator. So I suppose at that point we will be seeing a decision on whether this pension scheme is going to be changed. But perhaps the strike action will lead to some change before then. We'll have to keep an eye on that story. But for now, let's move on to our second story of the week, which is a new tool to spot duplicate images in papers. Why is having a tool like this important? Well, journal editors are very concerned about the proportion of duplicated images that we see in research papers. Some studies of large numbers of research papers in the biomedical sciences have suggested that. A good、uh, small percentage, perhaps as many as four percent, of these papers contain suspicious images. So now computer scientists say, well, we can do this with software, and we can look over thousands or hundreds of thousands of papers to spot 
images that are duplicated between them. So that could be an extremely valuable tool. What have these researchers actually shown this tool doing so far? Well, this is a paper on the BioArchive preprint server, so it hasn't been peer-reviewed, but it's researchers at Syracuse University in New York. And they say that they've got an algorithm that crunched through hundreds of thousands of papers uh, in the PubMed database. They specifically chose the open access papers in this database because you can extract images from them without any legal complications. And they picked out more than 2 million images. And then the algorithm makes a kind of characteristic digital fingerprint of each image and then essentially compares images to find uh, duplicates. Now, this is computationally extremely intensive. And in fact, they only compared images across papers from the same first and corresponding authors. So then after they'd done that, uh, the algorithm had flagged up these potential duplicates. They then manually examined about 3,700 of these, of these flagged up results. And they said, well, we think on the basis of that, about 1.5% of the papers in this open access database would have suspicious images in them. This seems like a really useful proof of concept, but in order to be useful, it needs to be adopted by publishers, for example. So the algorithm isn't public, uh, apparently, says researcher Daniel Acuna, because of the risk it could trigger false allegations. But he plans to license it to journals and research integrity offices, and they say they are interested. Um, and Elsevier, the uh, publishing giant, uh, says that it would support some kind of publisher-wide initiative whereby publishers would create a shared database, a private shared database of all published images against which you could quickly compare new papers. This has already been done in the field of text plagiarism. So why not for images too? So what's done at the moment? Are images just not checked in papers at all? Well, a very few journals actually employ people to manually look at the papers that come in, such as the EMBO journal, um, and they pick up quite a lot of problems before peer review. But that's just a few journals. Most journals uh, do not employ someone to screen images and manuscripts, and even Nature uh, runs, it just runs random spot checks on images in, in manuscripts. So say you found uh, two duplicate images, what does that actually tell us about the research practices that went into those papers in which they were found? Well, it depends on the context. It could be an appropriate use of the image from uh, earlier work and they've reused it correctly and cited it as such, or it could be outright fraud. So this algorithm is going to be a kind of automated pre-screen that someone is always going to have to look at to determine whether the use of an image is potentially fraudulent or suspicious enough that one would need to go back to the authors to ask them to address the issue. Richard van Norden, thank you for joining us. For all the latest science news, head over to nature.com forward slash news. And for a look behind the news, make sure to give Backchat a listen. February's roundtable discussion features a look at scientific disputes as well as scientific flukes. Find it on the Nature Podcast feed. Stay tuned for next week's show where we'll be bringing you a look at a science fiction classic. Until then, I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>